Welcome to the teaching ministry at Crothers Creek Community Church. Hey, good morning, everyone. Really glad that you're uh, here this morning. Again, like we always say, a huge hello to our online audience, wherever you might be. Uh, we welcome you. And I want to thank many of you coming back from the cottage before the turkeys are killed. It's always encouraging to us before Thanksgiving. So we welcome more and more of you as you come back. Well, tomorrow is a momentous day for me. I am having a midlife crisis as I'm speaking to you right now. I'm turning the ancient age of 35 years old. Now, oh, see, I hear booing in this section over here. Because anyone over 40, you have no mercy. You're like, oh, you're so young. But let me tell you, when I go tonight and pray, preach this same message to the 6 o'clock service, they're all going to be like, oh, he is so old. <laughs> he remembers the 80s. He remembers what happened in 1989. Can you believe how... Trust me, you can pray for me tonight. The rest of you don't care. Anyway, that's fine. Anyway, I'm turning 35 tomorrow. It's my birthday. And um, this weekend, uh, we were hanging out as a family in the midst of all sorts of different things going on. And my wife just stopped and looked at my oldest daughter, Hannah, and said, Hannah, uh, what, do, what do you want to give Daddy for his birthday? Now, if you don't know Hannah, she's just under three years old. She's uh, full of energy. She's very intense. She has a stare that could wipe any of you out already at three. We think she may be a lawyer. She always says, you know, three more minutes, two more minutes. We're going to do this. Uh, it's unbelievable. And, uh, and, and she, she is unbelievably impassionate, inquisitive, and she, she did this. Hmm. And then she opened her eyes and got this huge smile and said, I know. Daddy will want chocolate pudding, a piece of chalk, and a game. Now, I thought that was beautiful. At that moment, though, I was just thanking God it wasn't Dora the Explorer. <laughs> Boots and map and, oh my goodness, my dream, swipe or no swiping. Do you know what I'm talking about? And then there's always a mountain that turns out to be some big, large Mexican chicken. I mean, I, I'm having very bad thoughts about Dora these days. It's like my generation with Barney. We really just wanted to shoot him. But that's between me and my counselor, I admit that. But I was just thanking God at that moment. It wasn't Dora and Boots. Anyway, so as she was saying that, I just need to admit to you, I don't even like chocolate pudding. You chocolate people, I don't get you. It's butterscotch and vanilla. Please. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, some people believe in truth here. I don't know about the rest of you. It's butterscotch. And not only that, well, I don't mind chalk. I'm learning to be an artist. My dad's the real one, but I'm chalk drawing outside. I'm getting frustrated, though, that I find chalk on the walls and the banister. Different issue. And games, I'm not so into that. But here's what's beautiful about that statement from my young, lovely daughter. She took a moment and she thought about chocolate pudding, a piece of chalk, and a game. See, that is what is most valuable to her. In her world, at this moment, that's the best thing she could imagine giving her dad. And so she thought about the most important, most exciting, most beautiful thing, and she turned around and said, and I want to give that to you too. That's the power of real giving. Real giving happens when we take the most valuable, the most precious things, and we say, I want you to have that also. And found within my little daughter... I reflected on this message today as we continue in our series called Romans, Back to Basics, because the Apostle Paul, who genuinely loved people, was going to give them the most precious thing that he had been given, because it was heaven sent. 
That is the heart of all of Romans, and never forget it, that people matter to God, and Paul wanted to show them how they could connect through the gift that we sang about today called salvation. So if you've got a Bible, open it up to Romans chapter 1. We're going to go there again. And again, like we always say, we've got Wi-Fi in here. There are no excuses. Blackberry, iPhone, iPad, open it up. We all can access Scripture in one way or another this morning. We're going to start in verse 8 this morning. It's been 25 years since Paul had hunted Christians when Romans was written. He had met the living Jesus finally, and then he'd become a follower of him. Now, decades later, he wants to come to Rome. But as we shared last week, it's with a purpose. One wrote it this way, 25 years later, after studying the scriptures, growing as a Christian in a predominantly, do not forget, non-Jewish church in Antioch, Paul now has become the chief ambassador of the good news to the whole world between Jerusalem and Rome. Having accomplished all that he hoped in the lands already subdued by the empire, this apostle desires now to carry the good news to a people living in a newly Romanized province, but still considered barbaric. It's the country of Spain, but that will have to come after Rome. But let's, not stop, let's stop and not forget what happened for two and a half decades of service. This man had given up so much for the one that had given all, right, for him. He had been imprisoned in Philippi. He was chased out of Thessalonica. He was smuggled out of Damascus and Berea. He was mocked in Athens. He was called an idiot in Corinth in Jerusalem. By his own colleagues and friends, he was called a blasphemer, a betrayer of Moses and the law, and he was mobbed by them. He was stoned. Do you remember that? Stoned with stones, that is, left for dead in Lystra. And beyond all of that, one pointed out these words. Religious pagans in Paul's day actually branded Christianity as atheism because they only believed in one God. Atheism used to mean the belief in one God while you rejected the pantheon of deities. They said they're atheists, and not only that, they actually believed Christians were cannibals because of a misunderstanding of the act of Eucharist or, or communion, which we'll celebrate today. But despite all that pain and all that suffering, Paul with joy turns his face and his gaze towards Rome and then, of course, to Spain. But never forget, as we begin this today, what Rome was. Rome was the center of the known world. Rome's law was the foundation for the whole world. Its art was stolen from many other places and integrated to hundreds and thousands of masterpieces we still know about today. Her military, of course, was the fear and the envy of the whole known and even the undiscovered world. Yet another penned these words about Rome. How pitiless she was. Amidst her ruins of her city, the ancient city, you don't find one hospital. You don't find one orphan house in, in a city that made millions of orphans. The pious aspirations and the efforts of a few individuals never seemed to have touching, never seemed to touch the conscience of the people. Rome had no conscience. She was lustful, a devouring beast, made more bestial by her intelligence and her gluttonous splendor. And it's into that beast that Paul writes to a church just like us, trying to follow Jesus to see his kingdom come and his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Paul starts this next part of chapter 1 with praise. He starts it with encouragement and hope. He talks to this group and says, your faith and reputation, I need to share about it. Verse 8 reads like this, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is being reported all over the world. Paul affirms them in the strongest of ways. He thanks God. He brings them before the one who remembers all, uh, whose word and power brings life. He, he says, when I talk to God, I think about you. 
what you're doing, how you're suffering, how you try to love each other, the poor standing for truth in a world of gray, how to love your enemy. I think of you with joy and tears and hope. I don't even really know most of you, but everywhere I am, I keep hearing about you and people talking about you, and truly in the bad days, you're the one who keeps me going. And so when I pray, Paul says, I thank my God through the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, let's stop again and not miss this. Paul's writing is so thick. He, he, he right here shows us how our whole faith works. Jesus has created the only access to God which enables Paul to approach God even in thanksgiving. Paul wrote it this way to another young pastor around my age called Timothy. For there is one God and one mediator between God and people, and that's the man Jesus Christ who gave himself as a ransom for all people. See, if you don't know Jesus personally, prayer is broken because you can only talk to God through Jesus. Because when we enter into God's presence where angels dare to tread, Jesus' blood covers our sin when we talk to him. Paul is always teaching about life and truth, doctrine, ethics, community. But he's always thinking as a pastor. Here in this verse is one of the most shining examples of pastoral care. See, he doesn't just tell God he's really thankful for this church and move on. He actually stops after he prays and tells them too. I think all of us know, sitting here and watching or listening online, we all need encouragement. We need to hear you're doing well. You're doing great. You're powerful through the Lord Jesus Christ. Your faith is really building. I'm so pleased with you. One pastor wrote, most people in our culture hear little affirmation. Sparse amounts at work, less at home, and probably almost none at church, to our shame. But Paul stops and says, when I pray, I've got a lot of things on my, I think of you. He continues, God whom I serve with my whole heart in preaching the gospel of his son is my witness how constantly I remember you in my prayers at all times. And I pray that now at last by God's will, I may be, the way may be opened for me to come to you. I'm not joking, he says. I'm not just one of those people who says, oh, wow, I'm praying for you when I'm really not going to. I really do. God who I've given my whole life to, whose gospel I preach, the one that I witness about all the time, the one I pray to, he is my witness. And just so you know, I haven't just gone before him to thank, you, thank him for you. I actually have asked him to clear a path so I can finally come and meet you. Now, as we learned last week and even today, Paul's ultimate goal is Spain. He needs a sending base to get there. But don't read into this like Paul is trying to manipulate or use these people. He really wants to hang out with them, to love them, to do community. See, he knew, like all of us know right now, there is something about physical presence. There's something about physically being there that actually adds strength to encouragement. Paul in a roll keeps dishing out the love. I long to see you so I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. This is not about himself. This is what he could do for them. This is uh, motivated by concern and in a good way. He's not out to expand his own personal territory. He wants them to be strong. It's other-centered. It's pure motive. Seek first the kingdom of God stuff. Years later, one wrote these words. Paul's spirit was for all practical purposes actually duplicated later in another life. General Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army, once, General Booth, that great Christian, stood before Queen Victoria, the woman who had all power in her hands, and she asked what she could do for him. The old man looked at her and replied these words, Your Majesty, some people's passion is money. Some people's passion is fame. My passion has always been one thing, people. See, that's Paul's deal here. 
He wants to come so they can be strengthened. He values them as individuals. But then he goes farther. He wants to bring them a spiritual gift. So John hears the question, right? Well, what is it? Well, the phrase can be used in an ordinary sense. And the gift would be, I'm coming to you and our faith is going to be strengthened. That's the gift. But it can also be used in another way, that he, Paul, actually had been given an insight or ability by the Spirit of God which he hopes to give or share or pray over them. Now, I personally think it's the latter. I think the living God had given Paul something specific for that community. But, but no, no matter your viewpoint, here's the point. He wanted to build them up, to strengthen, to support, to do care. But then notice, in this next verse, Paul does something very cool, very mature, very Christ-like. He says these words to them. That is, that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. He could have said, when I come, oh my goodness, you are going to be so encouraged, so helped, so empowered by my teaching, my stories, my supernatural gift. I'm the Apostle Paul. Here I come. And he doesn't say that. He says, I can't wait to come because we're going to be encouraged. It's not your joy. It's our joy. As one said, very few things will strengthen an older Christian and their faith more than the vibrant faith of a new Christian. Any older Christians agree with that? It's absolutely true. Paul could not get enough of this for him and his life and his writings and his friendships and his talks. You see this again and again. He loved hanging out with young Christians and new Christians because he got so excited about what God was doing. I don't want you to become unaware, brothers and sisters, that I plan many times to come to you, but I've been prevented to doing so until now, in order that I might have a harvest among you, just as I have had among the other non-Jews. I'm obligated, by the way, he says, to Greek and non-Greek, to the wise and the foolish. I cannot wait to hang out with you to see what God will choose to do with us. See, God's heart, he was saying, was big for Rome. And he says, I want to see this harvest. I want so many living in darkness to see the great light of life. Jesus, the one that called me, Paul said, when I hated him. If that's the gift, then I want to give it again. I want them and me and you and all of us to grow up in our most holy, shared faith. Now, again, a little side note here. If you read carefully these verses and some other translations, you'll see that Paul is trying to address two audiences. The harvest here is both Christians growing up in their faith and people who don't care or sort of know or are seeking or not seeking, finding the living God through Jesus Christ. Here's one of the most important verses for us at C4. That is why one of our core values in this church that defines us uniquely is this. We value welcoming everyone to this church. We believe that the church, we are constantly addressing two audiences, those who have crossed the line of faith and those that have not. We recognize our need to minister to everyone. And as I said in our DNA series last year, we are called to build up Christians and consistently speak into the lives that are seeking and those who are not even seeking at all. This tension is most welcome here at Crothers Creek because we see it in Jesus, we see it in Paul, and we see it in the Scriptures. We reject the idea that church is a fortress. Paul shows us that the harvest is ready, and we have to be ready to go into that tension. Then Paul says these words. I want to be honest. <laughs> this isn't a hobby, everybody. This isn't just sort of a midlife crisis or a passion in life. Listen, he uses a strong word. He says, I am obligated. I'm a debtor. I don't have a choice. What did Paul call himself in the first seven verses? I am a servant. Translation, I am a slave. One reflecting said this, different types of debt can be found. 
If you owe a person or a bank money, you'll have to pay it back. But this, what he's talking about here, this is a different type of debt. If someone were to give me money to deliver to somebody else, I'm indebted to the one who gave me the money and in the real sense to the one that should also receive the money. As the middleman, I'm a debtor to both people. And Paul is writing, in effect, I have been given the good news from the Savior himself, and now I have the responsibility. I have an obligation. I have a debt to pay to give the news to other people. The debt is to God. The payment is to other people, to the service of people. Hudson Taylor, who gave his life for Jesus in China in the 19th century, once was having a conversation, and some people said, man... Hudson, you must have really loved the Chinese people to give up your your middle-class, comfortable lifestyle and go to a culture you didn't know and dress like them and, and literally become one of them. He responded, history tells us, by shaking his head and saying, no, it's not because I like the Chinese, which he did. He loved them. He says, I loved God. You see, he understood what Paul said, I am obligated to God and I am obligated to everyone else. Greek, non-Greek, wise, foolish, the educated, the uneducated, the simple and the smart, those who are elite and those who are on the fringe of society, all people groups, all families, everyone. And then he says, that is why I am so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are in Rome. Eager is an interesting word, isn't it? It's like the word keen. We don't say that very much anymore, do we? Eager. Keen, raring to go, ready, willing, fervent, enthusiastic. Think about that list of words. Feel the emotion of those words. Is this you? Does this describe your faith, your worldview, your desire for family, friends, neighbors, enemies, strangers? Is this you or have you had a spiritual disconnect and you don't look eager anymore? One preached Paul's passion burned with the urgency of someone who had actually found a fire escape and a burning high-rise, and he was desperate to save others, and he would cry out, go this way or that way, here's the fire escape, quickly come with me. That is his worldview. Is it yours? But this moment, already in the first chapter, him just starting to go, at this moment right here in the scriptures, he drops the big bomb. He, he gives the big idea, the heart of everything that he would hold true. Everything that Romans grows from is right here. Paul would say if he was standing or sitting or listening or talking to us, I mean, he'd say, look, stop. Listen very closely. Pay attention. I'm about to give you the most important gift. He says, I cannot wait to preach the gospel to you that live in Rome because. And then he says these grand words. He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, verse 16, because it has the power of God for salvation for whoever believes, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. He says, I am not ashamed. I am very proud of. I have confidence in the message that I give and carry. Paul, of course, knows our human tendency towards being embarrassed or even wanting to deny the truth we actually know. He says, don't back down. Don't turn. Don't be embarrassed. Don't be reluctant. Don't be mortified. Don't be humiliated into silence or into compromise. I am not ashamed of what? The gospel. Like we learned last week, the gospel, that Greek phrase is amazing. It was used in two specific times. When a great battle took place and the casualties were high and everything was on the line and victory was won, a messenger would run to the side and say, we have the gospel for you. We have the good news. Victory is ours. When a king and queen had a child, and that child would be the heir, and the line had been secured, they used to call it the gospel. 
And what's amazing is Paul picks a word that encompasses Easter and Christmas. The Son of God, the heir, is born. And what? At Easter, he overcomes death, Hades, hell, sin, the wrath of God, and victory is given. He says, I am not ashamed of this. Why? Because the gospel is the best news. And this message is not like any other message ever given. Unlike every speech, every book, every conversation that has ever been uttered or will be texted or twittered or spoken or written down. This message, unlike all others, is heaven sent. Just like the birth of Jesus, when heaven actually entered into time, when heaven and earth kissed and touched, when light broke into hell-bent darkness, every time the gospel is said and shared, Christmas happens again and again and again. The angels sing, darkness flees, sin is exposed, death is being defeated, humans are given the chance for forgiveness, hope, and peace between creator and created. Why? Why, Why is any of this true? Because the gospel, listen, has the actual, literal, present, here it is, power of God. This is where we get the word, woo, this is good. Everyone's like, oh, they're not Pentecostals, they're with us. (laughs) It's okay. Or maybe they are Pentecostals and we welcome you. It is where we get the power of God. It's the word in English called dynamite. It has the sheer power, the dynamic power. As one said, it has the unharnessable power of God to affect salvation both eternally and temporally. Another said the gospel carries the omnipotence of God whose power alone is sufficient to save people from sin and give us eternal life. And then Paul says, and this brings salvation. Most of the time in church circles when we ask, when were you saved? We mean, you know, when did you meet Jesus? What was the date? Some of us know and some of us don't. But salvation is much broader than that. Salvation means we were saved, we're being saved right now, and we will be fully saved from the wrath of God and sin and the world and the demonic and death when Jesus actually comes back. Tell me this morning, tell me one message, one religious idea, one political view, one clinical diagnosis. Tell me one scientific discovery. Point to one job, one thing you can own or buy. Point me to anything that can bring freedom from the list above? And the answer is, there is nothing. There is nothing, there is nothing in the seen or the unseen. And then Paul says these beautiful, oh-needed words. It is for everyone. It is universal for all people groups, all family groups, not just one race or one nation. He says, this power is the salvation for anyone who believes. The word believes is also the word faith in the Bible. Another Bible teacher summarizes it this way. Belief or faith carries the idea of trusting in, just relying upon. When used in the New Testament sense, it's actually written in something called the present continuous form, which is translated, is believing. Daily living is filled with acts of faith. Wouldn't you agree? We turn on the faucet to get a drink. We trust the water is safe. We drive across a bridge, and we hope and we expect it won't collapse under us. When we fly planes, though there are occasional disasters, we trust that they are going to get us to our destination. People could not survive without having implicit trust in a great many things. Actually, almost all of life needs natural faith. But Paul has something different in mind here. He has something called supernatural faith. Eternal life is both gained and lived in faith from God and Jesus Christ. For it is by grace you've been saved through faith, Paul would write. God does not speak. Listen, God does not first ask people to behave, but to believe. Did you hear that? Paul writes that God does not ask people to behave first, 
but to believe. People's efforts at right behavior always fall short of God's perfect standard, and therefore no person can save themselves by their own good works. Good works are a product of salvation. They are not the means of getting salvation. Salvation is not just saying, I'm a Christian, or I've been baptized, or a moral reform, or going to church, or being religious, or receiving communion, or living a life of self-discipline or sacrifice. Salvation is believing in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, Salvation comes when we give up our own goodness, our own works, our own knowledge, our own wisdom, and we trust in someone else named Jesus. And then Paul says these words that have been the bedrock from all churches in all time. For in the gospel, verse 17, a righteousness from God is being revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. You know, that phrase, righteousness from God, is a really significant little phrase. And I know it's tough. Everyone's thinking caps on just for a moment here. There's a lot of debate about what this means. In the Bible, it can mean three different things, just so you know. A righteousness from or of God. The first example is this. Many people believe the righteousness from God is actually an attribute of God himself. God is righteous. He's always in the right. So it can refer to his justice, like in Psalm 56. It says, the heavens proclaim his righteousness. God himself is judge. It also can mean faithfulness, but it's an attribute of God, mercy. So it's about who God is. That's the first view. But it's also about what God is about to do. Stuart Briscoe writes these words, flowing from the fact that God is always right. Paul explains how the gospel reveals a way in which God makes men and women who are in the wrong to be in right without God jeopardizing his own rightness. Isn't that good? He says, first and foremost, God is righteous. And the second definition of this is this. It is a status given by God to people. When God makes us righteous, God gives any person who trusts in Jesus a new legal standing before him. It's like a judge coming to you and saying, you are guilty, but someone else is going to take your punishment and you get a new clean slate, which of course is what Jesus did on the cross. It's not by your work or my work, it's about someone else's work. Another said, verse 17 could say, for in the gospel there is a righteousness which is from God, which is being revealed or being reckoned. So the first idea is God is righteous, and that's what's being revealed. The second idea is, since that's being revealed through Jesus, he actually gives us his righteousness. But there's a third idea, and the third idea is this. Others point out it could be translated righteousness done by God, which actually means putting all things right in all of creation, not just people. So here's the question this morning. Which one is it? Is it God is righteous? Is it we're made righteous? Or is it God doing righteousness in all creation? Well, I have good news, everyone. Yes. Yes. It's all three. The gospel is he's right. The gospel is he's making us right. And the gospel gospel is everything's going to be all right. That is exactly the good news of great joy for all people. That is the amazing thing that Paul is saying here. But then he ends specifically speaking into us as humans. He says, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last is written like this. It's out of Habakkuk. The righteous will live by faith. When you believe and rely and trust in Jesus and his work alone, you get right standing, you get forgiveness, you get salvation. But here's the truth. If you don't have faith, then you don't have trust. 
you don't have trust, then there's no righteousness. If there's no righteousness, there's no relationship. If there's no relationship, there's no hope. Now that's where we're going to end today. And we'll pick up chapter 1 next week again. So the question we always ask here at Crothers, like all churches, is what is the living Jesus, who is alive right now, trying to speak to us? I'm going to ask you as an audience and you who are listening and watching online, actually not to disconnect now, <laughs> to pay even closer attention. For you who are not Christians this morning, here listening or watching online, here's what God gives you today. He gives you the actual gospel, the good news that God gives you and wants to sing over you. It's everything you've been looking for, whether you know it or not. The good news, of course, is difficult for you at first, like it was for all of us. One got it sure right when he wrote these words. We know the gospel is unattractive, intimidating, and even repulsive to a natural unsaved person and even to the ungodly spiritual system that now dominates the world. See, the gospel exposes your sin, wickedness, depravity, lostness. It declares your pride to be despicable and works of righteousness worthless in God's sight. The Bible makes it clear that people cannot be spiritually changed or saved by good works or religion or ritual or by any other human means. But see, this is what God does because he loves you. He really wants to know where you're at so you will know who you are, so you will know you have need. You will never ask for help unless you need to know. You'll never ask for help unless you know you need help. If you would just come at this moment and believe and trust in Jesus to forgive you, you'll be given a new status before him. You'll be called friend, brother, co-worker. He, he, will be your, he will be your father. You'll never be alone. You'll be delivered from lostness and loneliness, from sin, from deserved wrath of God, from spiritual ignorance, from our own evil intentions and indulgences, from the demonic, from death, from false religion, from, from thinking that we actually one day are going to face him and our good works are just going to you know, make all things right. Later, Paul will write these words, which many of us here prayed when we met Jesus. It's Romans 10.9. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, you really know who he is, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be what? Saved. God's challenge to some of you this morning is that, that he wants relationship with you, but you have to give up your life to get life. You need to surrender your good works, your religiosity, your worldview. You have to surrender everything you are and just confess with your mouth out loud, quietly or out loud, Jesus, your Lord. I believe God raised you from the dead, and I need you to save me. The question that will be posed to you today in this series and now for the rest of your life is, what will you do with God's gift towards you? Will you say, yes, yes, I want what happened to Paul and all these other people, or will you declare, I know better, actually, I'm God and he's not? That is the question that heaven poses to you. To we who are believers, we've said that in some way or another. I think there's just a simple challenge and a huge encouragement for us this morning. Let me start with the challenge. It's a little biting, but it's important. Paul reminds every one of us hearing right now this message. We are obligated. We are obligated. We have a duty to share the gospel. We are called not only to share it, we are called to be eager about sharing the gospel. Yet the truth is, I do not find this true at Crothers Creek. Even the surveys that Dave and I did show us that one of our greatest weakness communally is talking about Jesus to people who don't know. We pray lots for them, but we don't talk. 
Fear of what people may say. Maybe pride, not wanting to be embarrassed or losing face with family or coworkers, friends or enemies. Maybe you'll suffer if you talk about Jesus. And then I think the big one here is this. Many of us lack confidence. We're not sure what we would say or we don't think we're the right person. Don't you know, John, I'm not Billy Graham. No, I know, nor am I. And it kills evangelism. But what we need to regain this morning out of the scriptures is this. When did we start thinking it was up to us to do the real work? The gospel has the power of God. It's not up to you or myself to prove or save someone. It is up to us to share our story and share his story. That's all. The real reason why many of us truly do not share is many of us really do not, in our core of our being, trust, really do not believe that God is going to come through and the power of God really is in the gospel. The battle is not about our personality types or our history or how how to share our faith. We can learn that. It is that many of us who have been Christians, especially for a long time, really don't think the gospel has the power of God to deal with the people in our lives, like our family, our friends, our enemies, and our coworkers. And so guess what? We're ashamed by default. But this doesn't have to be anymore. Let me declare to you again this morning, our confidence is not based in cockiness. It is heaven sent. We did not invent the good news. There is no ego that has to be involved. It is not up to us to be super thinkers or great conceptual theologians or evangelists. Thank God it's not about us. It's all about him. When we begin to share, and if we begin to share, it will happen because we come to the point, like Paul did, where he knew who he knew, Jesus, and he knew what he was sharing was, here it is, unshakable. Lack of faith, lack of trust, and lack of belief is the battle we face in this church. And the question is, what are we going to do about it? We've declared as a church, not out of pride or ego, but we have declared that we believe the living God of heaven and earth, the same Jesus that met Paul, is asking this community to reach 10,000 people. Do you think that's going to happen if we don't tell people? The answer is no. God comes to us today and reminds us the power that we need is not in how we speak. It's in how we act, but it's not in how we speak. It's not about our intelligence. It's about sharing what he has revealed to us and leaving the other stuff with him. And watch the power of God start showing up when we start stepping out in faith with all of our fear and trembling and start saying to people, can I tell you why I became a Christian and what Jesus means to be? You want to know an answer to this? It may be very churchy sounding and simplistic, but it's true. We need to pray like Acts chapter 4, where the community got together and said, God, consider the threats of our enemies. Honest, we're a little freaked out. Give us courage we don't have. Empower us, and let's go. The power of God is in the gospel. We don't need to be afraid anymore. That's the truth. Now, this is good, but in the next four weeks, who are we going to tell? That's the challenge. Paul, through his writing and through the Spirit of God, comes to some of you and says, you've never met God and it's time. To others of you, he says, you've become ashamed and you didn't even know it. But let me end with encouragement. Verse 12, I love this. That I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. There is nothing more important 
than sharing stories of how we met Jesus and what he's done in good times and bad times. Paul said, I want to hang out with everyday Christians because I know that that is where my faith is strengthened. So here's my challenge to you as one of your pastors. Please hear this. Please share your faith stories with each other. And I, and I mean really do this. Don't hear this and then go out for Swiss and never ever think about this again. Go out for coffee. Share it in your small groups, your friends, your family, your kids. Are you telling your children about what God has done in your life? Why do you think baptisms and videos like this are so powerful and important for us? Because our faith is built. But why are all of you waiting till Sunday to be encouraged, waiting for the big stage? Some of you need just to go out and begin to share how you became a Christian with others, the small and big things. Some of you have been physically healed and you've never talked about it. Some of you have been set free from demons and you don't think you can talk about that at Crothers. Talk about it. Some of you have stories of God providing when you had nothing. Some of you have been following Jesus and life is awful, but still you know his presence is with you. Some of you have answers to prayer. Some of you have stories we've never heard. If Crothers Creek Community Church wants to be building community, which is one of our big things we're going to fight for this year, one of the best biblical and non-programmatic ways to do this is getting intentional and sharing your story with other Christians. And let me say to you, especially you who are younger in the faith, hear this. Many old Christians get political, bitter, and cynical in church. I've seen all this. Church becomes political. They're cynical of every new thing. Oh, we've heard this all. But guess what? None of that holds when they hear a new Christian talk about God. It is your responsibility to share stories so political, bitter cynicism does not take root in this church any longer. Go and share your stories with each other, big and small. Go up to be people that have been Christians for years and say, if you get to know them, I want to tell you what God's doing in my life. It is the biggest thing that will melt them. And we need some of them melted because we have 10,000 people to reach. First thing, God says to some of you, I'm coming to meet you. To others of you, he says, don't be ashamed. It's not about you. The power is in the gospel in my spirit. And lastly, I, I commend you strongly. Share your stories of what God is doing. It is the most powerful thing that we can't program as a staff. This is what the Lord gives us today. This is what the Lord gives us today. I end with this story and I'm done. Last week at the 6 o'clock service, and by the way, is growing very quickly. Uh, we had a very amazing ex uh, example of a good story that I'll share quickly. Uh, a young woman who became a Christian this year in the Awakening community, or reconnected, told her story. She said, you know, I did the church thing. A dad was a raging alcoholic. I said, I'm out. I've had it. University. You know the story. And suddenly God got a hold of dad. And he got transformed. And the family got transformed. And on the screens last week, she just said to the Awakening community, I just want to tell you, I've met Jesus too. And I want to talk about it. And then Pastor Josh got up and he said, isn't that unbelievable? Everyone's like, wow, this is amazing. He said, you know what? We're going to go baptize her in the lake. The lake. She loved Jesus way more than any of you. <laughs> lake Ontario. Faith. In fall. And he said, God bless him. He said, you know what? Who else has become a Christian this year? You need to do this too. And one young woman, one young man said, yeah, we're in too. And 125 plus of us drove down by my neighborhood in cars. People didn't know what was going on. It was like an invasion. We're down at the beach. It's twilight. And, and I love generationally, you know, every person has a cell phone or, you know, they're, 
YouTubing it as we're starting, uh, texting, twittering, and, and we're all standing there, and Josh, of course, is really excitable. You know, he was already in the water five minutes early. Oh, anyway, he was excited. It was cold. Anyway, uh, he got out there, and we baptized last week three young adults who have met Jesus in this church. Isn't that amazing? It's amazing. This week, too, I met with 15 senior pastors from Ajax and Pickering and all of our, bar- our bizarre diversity. And we got together and we looked at each other and said three things. We want to be friends. We want to pray for each other and pray for our region. Are we all still committed to that? And we said yes. Isn't it beautiful to live in an area that does that? I want to tell you, be encouraged. God is doing great things. We're struggling and doing well at once like we always do as a church. But please take my words and don't just hear them. And especially don't just hear the scriptures. Act on them. That's what the scriptures command. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word that is powerful and effective. And honestly, we come to you as a community and, you know, a, a lot of stuff, a lot of stuff going on, good, bad, uh, you know, baptisms, but we're still dealing with death and then we're dealing with life and dedications. But our cry as a community, again, is this. We, we give you back Second Chronicles 5, that you would do a work among us that is unnatural, We give you back 2 Corinthians 5, that we would love Jesus in a way we never have before and do whatever it takes. So we pray, God, for many people to meet you this year. We pray that the shame level of Jesus and the fear and embarrassment would crash in this church and many would hear the good news. And we pray that many good stories would be shared intentionally on a regular basis to build us up. We pray that political cynicism would leave this church. And we again in faith, because we believe heaven has asked us, we pray for 10,000, not for our reputation, but for the reputation of Jesus and the touching and the changing of the world. We ask this in the name of Jesus and all of God's people said, amen.
Thanks for being with us today. If you want to know more about our church or give financially, go to our website at www.crotherscreek.ca.